Welcome to The Healthy Beast. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Mosley. He made his name with the 5-2 diet. He popularized intermittent fasting and now he's back with a new diet called the Fast 800. Helps you lose weight, not to look better, but so you can be healthier and live longer. What he says makes a lot of sense, but some people, particularly in the health service, are still not listening. He's a really fascinating guy and I hope you enjoy it. Dr. Michael Mosley, thank you very much for doing the podcast. Now you're known principally as the guy who popularised, invented the 5-2 diet. That's right, yeah. But you've moved on, you've got a new diet, the Fast 800, which we can talk about in a bit. But I just want to say the 5-2 for me was great. Oh, I'm pleased to hear it, yeah. And it seems to have had this huge effect on people throughout the country, throughout the world as well as this... Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, it really took off. Because I wrote that book back in 2012 with journalist Mimi Spencer. And it was published in December 2012, following a science documentary I made um, for Horizon called Eat Fast, Live Longer. And suddenly everyone started talking about intermittent fasting. Suddenly this thing which had been studied by a small handful of scientists and by a few people who were enthusiastic about this, but they were a very small minority, suddenly became a worldwide phenomenon. So the book sold in something like 42 different countries and sold well over 2 million copies in the UK, the US, Australia, you name it. Also Sweden, Finland, you know, it was just kind of everywhere. And since then, intermittent fasting has become a thing. Lots of people talk about it, lots of people talked about the 5-2, lots of people <laughs> talked about being on the 5-2, didn't work for everyone, but certainly it, um, it became hugely popular and uh, it also triggered in turn a lot of really interesting research which has developed over the last seven years and that's really why I wrote the Fast 800. It's a sort of bring together and an update of all the things that I have learned over the seven years since I wrote the original Fast Out. So the 5-2 for anyone, the few people who haven't heard of it, so it was introducing this, this idea of fasting and now my memory of growing up was that not only did people say fasting was, didn't say it was good for you, it was actually bad for you, you know you've got to eat something, you've got to eat something, it's unhealthy not to, but this idea had been around and you kind of investigated it and put it together, is that? Yes, I mean, it's slightly um, confusing because fasting, some people think of fasting as an absolute fast, which means that you don't eat or drink anything for, say, 24 hours. That's not what I meant by it because fasting is also defined as the voluntary abstinence from certain foods or, you know, things like that. So actually it's restricting your calories two days a week rather than an absolute fast. So what I recommended back in 2012, it was mainly based frankly on animal studies was cutting your calories down to about a quarter of what you normally would but just two days a week so that was around 500 calories for women and 600 calories for men and then the idea was you ate sort of normally but healthily on the other five days so uh, instead of doing what you might do on a typical uh, you know calorie restricted diet where you would just cut your calories by about five or six hundred across every day of the week for months on end, which is kind of standard advice, slow and steady weight loss, you know. Uh, the advice here was that you did something rather more dramatic, but you only did it two days a week. So it was a different way of calorie restricting, if you like. But it also introduced um, other potential benefits, uh, which I explored in the original documentary, but in the book as well. Uh, the other benefits which might come from really quite severely calorie restricting, even if it was only for two days a week. And I think it was a combination the promise of kind of weight loss, 
it was the promise of having a different way of you know doing a uh, weight loss program but also the other potential benefits uh, which might come from intermittent fasting that appealed to people so it was dare i say it almost wholly novel and that's kind of why it appealed but as i said there's quite a lot of confusion in there as well because some people then said you could eat whatever you wanted on the other five days which i never said and i was not very prescriptive about what constitutes a healthy diet full stop and that's again something which should become much much clearer over the last seven years so you know you start doing this stuff and then lots of other stuff comes along and that's kind of as i said why i wanted to update it so do you think the message got misinterpreted a bit that people were binging on the other days and possibly doing them so they were having their two calorie restricted days and then eating too much on the other days that maybe was counting. yeah absolutely so it clearly didn't work for everyone um some people did really well other people less well but certainly other people lots of other people wrote books <laughs> because that's the nature of the beast isn't it uh that as soon as this would seem to be popular indeed some people got books out before i did uh, because one guy had actually watched um, obviously the horizon and simply transcribed it he'd obviously watched it on his television set and then simply transcribed it word for word and stuck a book out wow uh, <laughs> almost did quite quite admire that you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so the, uh, it was quite annoying obviously yeah but, uh, uh, and a lot of these people who just turned out these other things clearly had no idea what they're talking about um they had either half read an article i'd written or half watched the documentary because an awful lot of nonsense um also spewed out at the same time and as i said uh that was unfortunate because uh a lot of people did get this idea that you could eat whatever you wanted and um, the sensible people obviously realized that was stupid what most people appreciated is if you're going to kind of restrict yourself two days the other five days you can't really afford to go completely crazy otherwise you know it's going to undermine the benefits the thing about these things is they go out there and they get changed they get transmuted all sorts of stuff happens has it do you get any kickback from the scientific community about intermittent fasting or does is it fairly is it universally accepted that it's oh it's not universally accepted i think um there's a lot of curiosity i got far less kickback than i was expecting certainly the nhs originally described it as a fad diet now uh, they're actually more enthusiastic about it i saw a review recently which said it can be more effective than doing standard weight loss and it can be more effective particularly for losing gut fat and for improving your insulin resistance and other things which are important so that's partly a product of the fact that uh, the science has moved on but um, yeah there was skepticism which is fair enough uh, a lot of doctors did it and uh, they actually found it quite easy to do so that helped uh, that uh, and i talked to a lot of doctors i put a lot of scientific references in the book uh, and all the books have lots of science references at the back so you can you know look into the claims i'm making and i think that helped because people could actually see the basis of what i was saying it wasn't just kind of some diet made up on the back of a cereal packet there was some science behind it and it has evolved the revelation for me was that it's okay to be hungry and carry on doing normal things like you can go and train and it's on an empty stomach and it's fine you you, you feel you've got energy levels because i think we we've grown up on this idea that if you don't eat your performance is going to crash and i guess if you're running a marathon or something like that it's different but for most people's normal lives it's absolutely 
absolutely fine. No, absolutely. And um, again, this idea that you should eat lots of small meals across the day, that's been around for a long time, based uh, initially on rat studies, but it turns out to be the world's worst advice because what people actually do when they eat lots of small meals is they eat lots of big meals as well. Snacking is one of the things which has driven obesity. It was encouraged, obviously, by the snack food industry um, who said, you know, a little treat, have a little bit of this, and then suddenly everyone's eating their chocolate bars, they're eating coffee, they're having snacks throughout the day. And this was sort of, oddly enough, almost encouraged uh, by dietitians, it's feeling you should never get hungry, you should never allow your blood sugars to fall down. All these sort of myths arose and it turned out to be the world's worst advice because all that happened is people ate more and having your blood sugars kind of constantly elevated is not a good thing because what that means is your body is constantly having to produce insulin and if it does that then this encourages ultimately insulin resistance where your cells rebel and basically you need to pump up more and more insulin and that takes you down the road to various forms of cancer but in particular type 2 diabetes. So this was a reaction to that if you like. It was saying actually it's a good idea to have longer periods without food uh, and that in a way is also harking back to our origins because you know our remote ancestors would have had periods of feast and famine and our bodies if you like are designed uh, to do that and it's quite clear that it's during the periods when you're not putting food into your system that an awful lot of repair goes on there's a thing called autophagy which is um, the idea of self-eat and this only starts to kick off for seven to eight hours after you've stopped eating anything. So another trend which I write about in a new book and which is kind of uh, on the website is time-restricted eating, which I wrote about originally in the fast diet, but then it was only rat studies. Now it's become the more human studies. But the idea there is a different form of intermittent fasting. Uh, but the idea there is you extend your overnight fast. Um, so that, for example, if you stop eating at eight o'clock at night, you don't eat again until 8 o'clock the next morning. That is a 12-hour fast. And you can extend it to 14 hours or indeed 16 hours. Um, so that becomes 16-8. And that's very popular with celebrities and with bodybuilders at the moment. Because there have been a couple of decent studies showing certainly in young male athletes uh, that if you do that, you can lose body fat without losing muscle. So 16-8 has become a sort of thing. But it's based on the work primarily of a guy called um, Professor Sachin Panda, um, who's based um, in California. And uh, he's done a lot of this sort of basic research, particularly with animals. But that has become a very, very popular form of intermittent fasting. And I've incorporated that into the Fast 800 because um, it works really well with the 5-2 diet. But there are lots of different forms of intermittent fasting. Um, uh, and that's also sometimes quite confusing for people. The, the, the title of the Fast 800, that refers to 800 calories. Yep. So this is a, this is a short-term calorie-restricted diet, yes. the, 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 the one referred to in the title of the book. So what you'd, you'd eat 800 calories a day for a period of time yes. that suits you. Yes. So you're saying a maximum of 12 weeks. Yes. I mean, there have been a number of studies recently. I also now suggest that if people are doing the 5-2 diet, they also go for 800 calories uh, because the original studies have said based on rats, uh, mainly animal studies. And uh, then the rats wrote to me and complained and they said, getting hungry. No, what actually happened was that the science moved on, people started doing studies and they found that 800 calories seems to be low enough uh, to be able to trigger desirable metabolic changes 
and also lead to quite rapid weight loss, but high enough to ensure that you're getting all your nutrients and things like that, all the protein and stuff you need. And it also seems to be more doable. So all the recipes in the new book are based around 800, and I do recommend to people when they're doing the kind of 5-2 approach that maybe they have a go at 800 calories on the two days in which they are fasting. Because 800 calories could be a decent-sized meal or yes. two smallish ones, basically. Absolutely. And uh, you can do it, spread it over three meals, two meals, depending on how you feel. Uh, the evidence seems to be moving towards the fact that you're probably best off having two meals a day with a kind of snack somewhere. Uh, and um, perhaps delaying, if you're not that you know crazy about having breakfast, there seems no good reason to have it. Uh, you might be better off either having it late in the day or really not eating until lunchtime. That will extend your overnight fast quite considerably, and people find that easier to do. Uh, again, we've been ingrained with the idea that breakfast is the most important meal of the day, but uh, there have been a number of um, big studies, a big one in the BMJ recently, pulled together of randomised controlled trials. And their conclusion was there is no evidence uh, that eating breakfast is beneficial in any particular way. Um, so it's kind of a myth, another of those myths that's been out there for a long time. Uh, clearly, if you like having breakfast, great. But if you don't like having breakfast, uh, there seems no good reason to have it. But I guess it's historically it's a modern modern invention in in terms of our development as a as a species, isn't it? It's just this having eating three times a day plus snacks. Well, snacks. absolutely, it's very much a sort of Victorian and post-Victorian thing. And prior to that, uh, in the Middle Ages, um, having breakfast was seen as almost a sort of a moral sin. It was seen as a sort of form of weakness. People just didn't. Uh, and they wouldn't expect to eat until midday or something like that. So historically, it's an anomaly. And again, the idea of you're having three meals a day uh, is largely a sort of 19th, 20th century construction. And uh, there seems no good reason. I said two meals a day. Some people go more hardcore. They do one meal a day. I personally, I'm not sure I fancy that. Uh, but again, uh, the benefits seem to come from extending your, your fasting, if you like. So you just need periods of time downtime, your gut needs periods of time, your body needs periods of time where it's not digesting, processing food, dealing with food, having to do all this rapid protein turnover. It, it needs time, off time if you like, in which um, the body gets on with doing the sort of cleaning up processes. As I said um, one term for it is autophagy, uh, but uh, yeah, uh, that's kind of where the science is exploring now is the benefits of uh, more prolonged periods without food in your system. And that seems to impact on uh, things like sleep as well, because uh, Professor Panda, who I referred to before, his field is chronobiology. It's really uh, the impact of your internal body clock. And he's the guy who originally, or at least with his team, he demonstrated that it's light which resets your internal clock the light you're exposed to in the morning. But he also showed that food also resets the internal clock and in an independent sort of way. So when you eat, impacts all the other systems of your body. And indeed, when you stop eating, uh, that also impacts it. And I was over in California recently at the world's first intermittent fasting conference in which all the scientists gathered. And that was very, really, very, very interesting. Uh, there were a few of us from the UK, but quite a lot from uh, the States and also Australia. So this has become a, a thing. 
it's a real thing, you know, big institutions are into it, lots of academics are interested in it, because uh, I think it's partly driven by the fact that the public are interested in it. Um, so suddenly that's um, driven curiosity amongst the scientists as well. So I noticed the, um, I look, on the way over I looked at the NHS eating guidelines mm. and right at the top is this, because you're talking about snacking, right at the top is the five a day that we all know about, so um, five pieces of fruit or whatever it is, and then the ne- so that's already encouraging regular snacking. And then the next thing is, it says, I think I'm quoting it correctly, it says, base your meals on complex carbohydrates mm. like potato, rice, pasta. How, I mean, how does it feel after everything you've studied, the fact that the NHS is still basically saying, eat regularly and eat lots of pasta? <laughs> it's quite, no, it's kind of frustrating, isn't it? Um, I do think that uh, the world does move and will move on. I do think that, you know, some people, that's great. You know, uh, on the whole, um, it, it can work, it doesn't work for other people. For people who are, uh, you know, prone to things like type 2 diabetes, then filling their faces with starchy carbs is probably not a great idea. And again, there are different types of rice. So white rice, there's almost nothing good to be said about it, apart from it, in fact, it tastes quite nice. But it rapidly gets converted to sugar in your system. And so you'd be better off with sort of brown rice and stuff like that. And uh, again, some people are really sensitive to bread. So I know that when I eat bread, uh, my blood sugars go completely crazy. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether it's white bread, brown bread, or whatever it is, uh, it still has that effect. Uh, whereas um, Claire uh, has less effect. And that seems to be due with your microbiome. So I do think the NHS kind of needs to move on. Uh, but because it's based on kind of consensus and things like that, these things take a long time to change. And that is frustrating. Because the bit about eating um, some protein and fats, that was right at the bottom and it was almost as if I would have a little bit of this. When you've had all your fruit snacks and your pasta, add in just a little bit of what I think from what I've read of what you said, that's the really good stuff right at the bottom that they just mentioned, you know, the fish and eggs and so forth, that you just have a little sprinkling of, that really should be... It's certainly um, for a substantial, I mean on the whole now, I eat far less uh, rice and pasta and things like that and um, if I'm having a meal it's going to have more sort of meat, fish or whatever and also more vegetables. Uh, so that I have to a large extent replaced uh, the rice and the pasta with the veg instead uh, because it comes with fibre and it comes with other nutrients which broadly speaking unfortunately uh, you know things like rice don't have much of. Rice has um, a fair amount of starch, it has um, not inconsiderable amounts of arsenic which is <laughs> terribly good for you uh, but not very much in the way of other nutrients. Uh, it was obviously a great thing to have if you're a Chinese peasant working in the fields. Uh, you want to have a rapid source of energy, and that is terrific. But if you're not, if you're not doing hard workout, then uh, you know our bodies basically don't need that much starch. And the same is true, obviously, of potatoes. That again, great if you are about to expend a huge amount of energy. Uh, I can understand why people carb load if they're going to go and run a marathon. But for most of us, uh, all that happens is it pumps our blood sugars up. And then uh, unless you're 
going to work out and you're going to burn off all that energy, uh, then uh, what you're going to do is your body's just going to pump out insulin and high levels of insulin really not good for you. So uh, I think this is the sort of advice uh, which is suitable for a peasant economy um, and where people are doing a lot of physical activity. Uh, in the modern world, um, that just isn't, isn't true. So you have to be adapted to something different. Because really, I mean, it, the reason it came into a diet is just because it's a cheap way of getting lots of calories, right? It's a cheap way of getting easily accessible energy, absolutely. And uh, as you say, it's kind of a cheap form of calories. And the tragedy is that a lot of these um, less healthy foods have been heavily subsidized. So certainly in the States and places like that, um, corn and other things like that heavily subsidized and that means uh, they look around for other things to do with it and then they turn it into fructose and other syrups and things like that. And the big thing which has changed in the diet in places like the States and also in the UK is that we have seen enormous rise in the consumption of sort of dreadful uh, not, uh, carbs, things which are sugary and you know things like that. And also the fiber content has fallen. Because I don't have a problem, for example, with whole grain. Uh, rice or brown rice or stuff like that. I'm not kind of, I'm not an Atkins, I'm not a keto diet person, uh, but I do think we overeat it and I also think uh, that uh, the, the bigger problem is to do with the lack of fibre in the diet and that's um, been one of the striking things that's happened over the last 30, 40 years. Been uh, taken out. It's been taken out. And because of eating processed food. A much more processed food and that really is um, I guess where everybody would agree uh, that uh, there's too much junk food, too much processed food, particularly in the UK. Uh, huge amounts of it consumed. Uh, it's convenience food but it's, in the end it's not that convenient and what happened is that big food took the sort of lessons learnt from big tobacco and just kind of applied them. So uh, there's a reluctance to deal with the fact that our diet is profoundly unhealthy for us and that as a result of buying all these lovely convenience foods we have, certainly in the UK, some of the highest rates of obesity in the world. And uh, unfortunately it's, it's also impacting very heavily on uh, kids and things like that. So there's no particular evidence it's getting better and if anything it's likely to get much worse. Do you think there's a sense in which, I mean maybe you've answered already, but there's a, there's a Although lots of people are reading about diets like yours, and there are, there's this there's this huge number internationally. When you look at excuse me, when you look at a country like ours, most of the people are actually eating worse. You know, so you the, the, you may you may talk to like-minded people who are into health and mm. into fitness and, and doing trying diets like these and trying mm. new exercise regimes. But in, if you look at the numbers, most people are actually getting unhealthier. Yep, and uh, I think that. Uh, I'm sort of vaguely optimistic, but the weird thing is, as you say, the, there are far more celebrity chefs out there, uh, far more television programs about food. People are all interested in watching, but not so interested in eating the stuff. Uh, my wife is a GP. Um, she writes the recipes for the books, and um, she tries out the recipes on her patients. She sees a lot of patients uh, with type 2 diabetes. Um, she's in a part of the world where there are a lot of um, a very high Asian community. Uh, and um, she does find that her patients are receptive. The, they, you know, 20 years ago they would have just demanded drugs. Now they kind of want to know. They're beginning to realise they, frankly, because they read books like mine, uh, the message is seeping out there. And because I write a column in the Mail on Sunday and I write about these things, it's a different way of 
getting to audiences who might not be reading The Guardian or whatever it might be. Mm. And they do understand, you know, the, what they eat has a profound impact on their health. They are seeing other people in the community develop type 2 diabetes and the complications of that, which include impotence, blindness, um, heart disease, strokes and all those sort of things. We're living longer and that means that people are beginning to see even more of these things because we're living longer in ill health and so average life expectancy in the UK for men and women is something like 82, 83 but in some parts of the country you can expect to have only 50 years of good health which means you're going to spend 33 years of your life in ill health and you know people are beginning to understand that pills alone are not going to help and so that's the optimistic part of myself. I think that actually people are beginning to question. And when they are presented with the information, with the knowledge, on the whole they do embrace it, particularly if there's a kind of a trigger moment. And um, Claire, my wife, says it often comes when somebody discovers they're a type 2 diabetic or they're started on more medication or, for example, they have type 2 diabetes and they're about to start on insulin. That's when they see her and she says, look, most of what we've been telling you for the last 20 years is wrong. Why don't you try this? And uh, an awful lot of them are interested. They take the book. She gives them a copy of the book to take away and read or whatever. And then they start to embrace it. And so this is not just kind of a middle class fad. This is something which is kind of spreading. And I am encouraged because I do think there is a big movement now towards what I would describe as de-prescribing, uh, people realising that relying on medication alone is not going to save them. De-prescribing. So, mm. yeah, so I guess the problem is when you get to the doctor, by that time it's often not too late necessarily, but you've al already done a lot of the damage from, Indeed. from your diet and your lifestyle. And possibly another thing that's come up on the podcast a lot is, I don't know what the situation was for you when you started focusing on on nutrition and so forth, but doctors, we, we expect them to know, non-doctors like me, we expect them to know a lot more than us about eating and so forth, but it's it's come out with all the doctors I've had on that you don't learn anything when you're... No. And my son, uh, one of my sons who's just recently qualified as a doctor again, he learnt almost nothing at medical Still school. The There's a kind of a, a groundswell from the bottom upwards in places like Bristol, for example, the medical students are demanding and they are, looks like they're going to receive uh, better nutritional advice than we did. But uh, it's weird that we learnt nothing about nutrition and nothing about exercise. Um, so that most doctors, when presented with a patient, have nothing to say. And again, one of the things which is very clear talking to the weight loss specialists like Professor Susan Jebb at Oxford University is that um, doctors, is the doctors assume that patients will be embarrassed if you bring up a subject like obesity or being overweight. Uh, but actually most patients say they wouldn't. And so I think it would be quite a good idea if you kind of weighed patients beforehand. And some people would find it difficult, but that's a way of anticipating the problem. Because we know, and Claire says, you know, she can see a patient come in, she knows they have a metabolic problem because they have a big gut. And your waist is better than BMI when it comes to predicting future health. So you could see someone, and even long before uh, they actually start to express problems, uh, it's pretty obvious that they are going to have a problem. So you see somebody come in, they've got quite a big waist, even if they're in their 30s or 40s, you're beginning to think this person is likely to have problems further down the line. And um, so Claire now measures them. You know, she gets out the tape measure and, you know, if necessary, she runs around them because some of them are quite big. And these are people who no one has talked to about for weight for 20 years. And occasionally they look a bit offended when she brings it up. She's quite 
tactful about it, uh, but that's another thing GPs could do, uh, is anticipate the problem, but obviously GPs don't have a lot of time, and they, as you said, they don't have a lot of knowledge, um, and that puts them in a difficult position. So you actually get this situation with GPs, do you, where you might have someone who's obese coming to see the doctor and it's not mentioned? Yes. So you talk about... Other... Everything else, but not about that at all. Uh, and because they haven't come in uh, overtly to talk to you about the fact that they're obese and would like to do something about it, so you ignore it. And uh, maybe they've got, you know, and if they have um, their blood sugars raised, well, you say to them, actually, it's fine, you can take this medicine, uh, this metformin stuff, and uh, go and see the dietitian, and, you know, it'll all be marvelous. And the reality is, we know that's not true. We know that even if you take medication, if you have type 2 diabetes, uh, then the disease tends to progress. And so that's kind of what I write about in the books, because we know now how it is possible to uh, reverse put type 2 diabetes into remission by going on uh, a low calorie diet also probably a sort of lowish carb diet both of those help and uh, most people are unaware that this can be done and although in theory doctors are supposed to address lifestyle changes before they um, prescribe most don't because there's no great guidance on what those lifestyle changes should be uh, the evidence is that, you know, instead they just get stuck on medication because, again, there's this idea that if you get people on medication as quickly as possible, this will relieve the long-term complications. Although, as I said, there is no real evidence for that. Um, and uh, the clinical trials are very equivocal about the long-term benefits of medication. And so that's, again, one of the things that if you say to patients, then they kind of sit up. And again, not everybody is prepared to give it a go but the reality is an awful lot of people are and uh, I found it hugely encouraging because I talk a lot to doctors and I get invited to conferences I uh, find it hugely encouraging that people are interested in the message now and they um, there have been a number of really big studies recently demonstrating the benefits of rapid weight loss in particular and that's again the basis of the fast 800 it's rapid weight loss initially followed by more slow and steady stuff. Because yeah, you said rapid weight loss. This was another one of the no-nos, wasn't yeah, it, before? Absolutely. It was you, if you're going to lose weight, you must lose weight steadily. So all the kind of person standing holding their big trousers, I lost 20 stone yeah. and however long, this was, we were told, was bad because it's bad for your system and you're just going to put, put the weight back yeah. on. You're saying quite firmly that that's not true. It's not true. I mean, it can be true, depending on, there are lots of bad diets out there, something like 50,000 diets out there, I was told the other day, wow. and uh, most of them are terrible. Uh, but if you do it properly, then the evidence seems to be that uh, it does lead to long-term benefit. Now, some of the old rapid weight loss diets um, were bad. They were very low calorie, three or 400 calories, and uh, they didn't have adequate levels of protein. The nutrients were poor. Uh, a lot of them were based on supplements or on sort of sachets which contained absolute junk. And so not surprisingly, people who did those sort of diets tended to do rather badly. Cabbage soup diet, all sorts of crazy diets. You need good quality protein, at least 50 grams of good quality protein every day. That's probably one of the most essential nutrients. Uh, but beyond that, there have been uh, three really decent long-term trials that I'm aware of uh, using the 800 calorie approach, uh, which is pretty rapid weight loss, 800 calories a day for up to 12 weeks. 
and uh, the two of them now have two-year data. In other words, they've been followed for two years. And those doing the rapid weight loss did an awful lot better than people doing the slow and steady stuff. When people, so if you do this 12 weeks of 800 calories a day, how are people finding it at the end? Do they, do they kind of go back to... No, I mean, what's interesting, obviously, is we, uh, at the, on the website, fast800.com, we also have an online course for people who want added support because not everyone can do it by themselves. And uh, particularly if you're on medication or things like that, then you probably need support. So we have professionals, we have doctors, and the whole thing was has been trialed for about three or four years now. We launched it in early January, and since then, uh, I think the number of people who've done it has, um, they've lost a total of nine tons. Wow. Which is pretty good over the last couple of months. And hopefully that will go up. But um, one reason we really wanted to do this online course is we wanted to collect data because we want to be able to see if people do it, how do they get on with it, uh, when do they drop out of it, uh, what are their sort of biomarkers, what happens next. Um, we recommend 12 weeks. Can you continue for longer safely? Yes. If you kind of have support, uh, there's very varied uh, menus on it because some people... The recipes in the books are primarily, they have a sort of, um, they're based on a Mediterranean style diet, but they're not primarily aimed at vegans and vegetarians, and that's kind of growing group. So there are recipes that are more appropriate for them on the online course. Uh, but as I said, in the end, what we're really trying to do is collect data, uh, because I do think this is kind of the future in terms of distributing it via the NHS. The, um, it would be great if this stuff was freely available, and the only way to make it freely available is if the NHS funds it, which obviously costs. To have professional sport costs money, but to do that you need data, you need to be able to prove that this thing is effective and it is safe, and that this is kind of the best way to go. And I do believe that this sort of online approach is undoubtedly the way you're going to be able to spread it. There's lots of obviously Weight Watchers and stuff like that. They tend to be a kind of based on low fat, which I think is a, a model that has failed. Uh, but they're also quite expensive because they require people to turn up. Uh, and again, it's mainly women who will do those things. Uh, you know, go to a community hall or whatever it might be. Men are very reluctant to take part. I, I and for men, it's quite a big problem. I was thinking about this earlier, actually, and I didn't, partly it's just me, but growing up you wouldn't want to admit to being on a diet no and I'm not sure some blokes I'm not sure have, mo have gone past that particularly no I idea. think it's in, still seen as sort of a girly thing I mean one of the things about intermittent fasting is fasting sounds a bit hard a bit spiritual so people are more willing to admit to it but I do think that online uh, particularly you know you join a community it's a bit anonymous or you can make it as engaged or not as you feel like um, I do think you also get support and I think uh, that trying to do, you know, losing weight is a tough thing to do uh, and keep it off is a tough thing to do. And what I found really encouraging about helping develop a community is that there are so many people who are so grateful uh, for having, you know, the changes they've experienced that they want to share and they all have a sort of wealth of knowledge that they want to share. And uh, that's the great thing about being a human being. And the reason why uh, we have risen to the apex of the animal kingdom, if you like, 
is that we are cooperative creatures. You know, we share our wisdom, we share our experiences. We obviously compete like crazy as well. Uh, mm. But on the whole, I do believe in the sort of the altruistic ape. And, uh, and that's my experience, is that people who've done well on these sort of things, they want to help other people do it as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny what you said about dieting and, and fasting, but it does, in the gym I go to, people seem to talk a lot about fasting, and that's fine, but you never <laughs> really hear the D word. Man. No, no, no one's talking about their dieting. It's funny, the dieting implies, you know, they're overweight and something not up to it or whatever and things like that, but fasting, uh, you could be doing it just because you want some of the other benefits, which are not necessarily to do with dieting, but clearly blokes, I mean, uh, obesity is probably uh, higher amongst blokes than women really and uh, men also have a tendency uh, to put it on around the gut more than women and that's um, the worst sort of fat the visceral fat the gut fat and that's why rates of type 2 diabetes are higher in men than women and things like that and you can get guys who you wouldn't think of as fat no. but they're would you, well, I think you had a thin <laughs> I, toffee, I was a toffee thin on the outside fat inside yeah. uh, but normally it does show around the gut because my waist was about 36 inches and it's now about 33 uh, but yeah, it's kind of ideally your waist should be less than half your height. Right. So uh, I don't know if you think in. So I still think in inches. Unfortunately, I think of myself as five feet eleven, and therefore my waist is about thirty-three inches. But uh, yeah, okay. uh, one point eight meters and, and, uh, and eighty-seven centimeters. Right. Okay, yeah. so half your height. Yeah. The blood sugar diet yep. is another one of yours because I noticed there's a thing on there. There's a an are you addicted to carbs test. Yep which I tried yeah, this morning. I got four, which I said I may be. Yeah, okay. Um, so yeah, no, I mean, uh, the blood sugar diet uh, was a follow-on, if you like, from the fast diet. The fast diet was more general, uh, aimed at, it was just introducing, if you like, the world, to the world of intermittent fasting and the potential benefits. The eight-week blood sugar diet was much more specifically aimed at people who had raised blood sugar levels, whether they were pre-diabetic or type 2 diabetic. And that was based on the work of uh, Professor Roy Taylor up in Newcastle, who wrote the foreword, and um, the book is largely based on his research. And uh, again, the reason I was so passionate about it is because I had discovered I was type 2 diabetic. And that was really the beginning of my journey in 2012. That was the motivation. That's the reason I got interested in nutrition, the reason I discovered intermittent fasting. I wanted to reverse my type 2 diabetes without going on medication. And that's what I managed to do doing the 5-2 diet. But it was Roy Taylor who really explained to me why. And he introduced me to the idea of rapid weight loss, 800 calories. He was then doing it for eight weeks, uh, since extended to 12 weeks and then to 20 weeks. And uh, so he's done a big trial called Direct, which has been following people now for two years. And the people on the rapid weight loss diet uh, lost an average of 10 kilos and managed to keep most of it off. And uh, a significant a number of them, uh, two years, it was about just over a third, were able to come off all medication and their diabetes was in remission. But compared to the control group who were following standard NHS advice, they were so much better off in so many different ways. Um, and uh, that's why I think the government is sitting up and taking notice now, and they're going to start to embrace this approach. So when I wrote the book, uh, 2014, it was seen as pretty radical. Now it's pretty mainstream. So you, you reversed your type 2 diabetes and never had to take any no, medication? No, and been fine since. So that was really all about getting rid of the gut fat, the visceral fat. I lost about 10 kilos, which is uh, just over 20 pounds, 22 pounds. Uh, and that was enough to drain the fat out of my liver and my pancreas. And that's kind of what restored me to health. 
clearly the longer you leave it the more the damage is done and I was fortunate because the fat I was tapped in I bet was picked up early by accident I had a blood test for something completely unrelated what age were you at this point uh, I was 55 so uh, if you get it at that age then it tends to be more aggressive and more dangerous and have longer term impacts and people are getting it younger and younger so did you as soon as you were diagnosed did you immediately think right I don't I'm going to take the medication somewhere down the line but see if I can do anything about it first or were you adamant that you didn't want to take no I just I was curious uh, because I wanted to see I was told you know and I thought really is that really the best advice and being a science journalist I had the advantage that I could bring lots of people up and so I started to inquire about it and then I heard about intermittent fasting and then I persuaded the editor of Horizon to let me make the documentary so that's kind of uh, how it happened and uh, certainly nobody was saying to me at the time uh, that this could potentially reverse your diabetes but there was already interesting research done on people having bariatric surgery uh, that's the sort of gastric bypass surgery and that showed uh, that within you know Stay a week that's when they basically they open you up and they take a chunk out of your stomach and they join the bits up mm -hmm. and uh, that leads to rapid weight loss and uh, they had studies showing that people who were overweight obese had type 2 diabetes within days were able to come off all medication and 20 years later as long as you kept weight off you were fine so they had known this even back then they knew this uh, but people hadn't kind of put it together they'd assumed it was something to do with uh, the surgery indeed I met a surgeon a bariatric surgeon who said I don't see myself as a weight loss surgeon I see myself as somebody who cures type 2 diabetes and this was 10 years ago so I thought I'm not going to have surgery but surely there must be it suggests there's something going on and that's kind of what led me to intermittent fasting and then to rapid weight loss and stuff like that and uh, we've now moved on to realizing it's really just about the weight loss if you can achieve rapid weight loss quite significant weight loss as I said you probably have to lose about 10 percent of your body weight to reverse type 2 diabetes but if you do it the rapid way uh, then that seems to be very effective and you, it's not just for diabetics it's also you know my thing is not about aesthetics uh, it's really about trying to you know undo some of the damage which is being done by carrying around too much excess fat particularly the fat uh, the internal fat the fat in your liver and your pancreas because again we know that liver failure due to too much fat in the liver is now the number one cause of liver transplants uh, in the UK and that again is entirely to do with accumulating too much fat around your gut used to be alcohol uh, non um, but now it's basically caused as I said by just too much kind of junk food and other things because you you initially did some more radical fasting yes didn't you what I was, did what was the what was the worst or longest you uh, the longest I did was five days and I was we on about 20 to 30 calories a day I was kind of a bit of miso soup sipping so that was part of this horizon documentary I looked to first of all uh, what are called cronies calorie restrictors on optimal nutrition and these are people who go on about 1500 calories for the rest of their life uh, and that was based on again on animal studies which have shown that this is the only way to extend healthy life the only way it's ever been shown uh, to extend healthy life and uh, it's been shown also in monkeys recently and now a whole bunch of humans are giving it a go but we're not going to know the results of that for some time, for a long time. 
but uh, long-term care restriction does lead to significant delays in the aging process. This is the elixir of youth. This is the only thing that's ever been shown to do it. But the significant side downside is obviously you're going to have to live on 1,500 calories. Uh, and you're going to be super skinny and you're going to feel really cold even in the middle of summer and you have to wear. It also does bad things for your sperm count if you're at all worried about that. Not such a great thing if you're a woman. So there are significant side effects. And so that's kind of where I started. Uh, then I moved, looked at alternate day fasting. Then I moved on to intermittent fasting, but also looked at um, five-day fasting, and that's the one where I did the five days. And it was okay. I was doing it while filming, which wasn't ideal, uh, but... What, because being able to be chirpy for filming? Or... Yeah, and it kind of, you know, uh, it was distracting, but I'm not convinced by the benefits of it. And indeed, the guy I did it with, Volta Longo, who's a professor at the University of Southern California, he runs the Longevity Institute there. And he's kind of shifted his view now again to doing 800 calories for five days a week and he's doing um, research now he's got about five or six studies going on around the world looking at the impact of this on people who have cancer uh, particularly people who uh, are about to undergo chemotherapy uh, because there is some decent evidence that doing these sort of shortened fasts before during and after chemotherapy um, increases the effectiveness of it. So there are a large number of studies going on at the moment. He has had funding from the National Cancer Institute in the States. Um, so he has a very, he's a very, very reputable scientist with a large body of data behind him. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing more of his publications. And that again is a different form of intermittent fasting. And I write about him in the fast day. Hmm? What's his name again? Volta Longa. V-A-L-T-E-R-L-O-N-G-O. Uh, so again, I write about him in the Fast 800 uh, because uh, he does a different form of um, intermittent fasting. His isn't so much intermittent, as I said. Uh, it's a five-day. He calls it a fast-mimicking diet. Right. So, but it is basically an 800-calorie diet done over a period of five days, and you do this uh, every few months. I guess as well as the physical effects, you've got to think of what suits each, each person psychologically. Yep. Because for me, I found doing the 5-2, it was great. I lost, I got really lean really quickly and felt great. But it was this thing of thinking, what day's tomorrow? Yeah. So I found it, I, after a while, I found it a bit unsettling to be thinking, right, oh, I can't, I can eat more, more tomorrow. And then that day you're thinking, yep. and, and when am I going to have this? fast day so after a while I found it a bit oppressive a little bit yeah yeah I never really intended your life around absolutely it. well I never intended it to be a long-term thing mm. uh, the idea was that you give it a go for a while lose some weight and then kind of use that as a way of controlling things uh, some people like doing what I call 6-1 where you do it one day a week if it feels oppressive then yeah that's not great uh, the only way you can reframe it in your brain and a lot of this is about things like that the psychological aspect is to say to yourself, well, you know, if you look, if you look forward to it, and that's kind of a weird thing to say, but some people do find they get improved mental clarity, and they quite like it. If you see it almost as a challenge, it's a bit like exercise. You know, few people really enjoy doing exercise. Some people love it, uh, but an awful lot of people don't. I do, luckily. Yeah, absolutely. And if you some find people you love doing. It's great. Absolutely, and it's quite clear that some people do get a sort of, you know, a kick from doing it. Um, and most people don't. And uh, interestingly, when I talk to evolutionary psychologists, they say, look, in the past, 
uh, if you're a caveman, cavewoman, or whatever, and you're on the, you know, then actually you don't want to be exercising because uh, it's just a waste of calories. You want some members of the group to like it and go off and chase the antelope, or whatever, but you want most of you to sit around in a sort of sedentary sort of way, collecting berries or whatever, but not burning many calories. So you want, you want a, a subset of the group who like it, doing it. Is that, is that really what it should be? Yeah. So probably about a third of people seem to get pleasure and enjoyment from exercise and two thirds don't. And that is also reflected in the data. So you, you can try and find something you enjoy and that clearly is going to be the best way. But just saying to yourself, I'm going to do it because I know it's good for me, is very hard to sustain. And that's probably what you found with the 5-2 diet. I'm doing it because as soon as you start feeling a sense of dread uh, at um, putting on your gym shoes and going for a run, uh, it's going to be a challenge. Uh, so you have to think, oh boy, I'm going to enjoy this. Or you have to find something you enjoy doing, like dancing or something like that. Or you have to just build it into your life so you just can't not do it. So for example, I cycle up the hill. So um, I live a mile from the station. I just have a rule, and one of my rules is I will always cycle. I don't mind it in the morning because I'm going downhill. In the evening, I do mind it because I, it's a slog, uh, but the bicycle is there, and I um, know there's no other way of getting home. <laughs> so that's what I do. And I put in some hit on the way, but I basically build stuff into my life so I can't uh, avoid being active. Uh, and I think that's probably the way that most people are going to kind of get around the problem of being slothful. In the end, uh, you have to recognise that uh, most people are just not going to want to go off and play football or even dance or things like that. So they, you've got to change the built environment, and that's one thing that governments could do, is just make it much, much harder to avoid being active. And that would include things like you know, making sure that uh, in hotels, new builds, the stairs are at the front and the lift is somewhere at the back and small and perky and smells of BO. So the, it's much more likely you will take the stairs. Unfortunately, the opposite is true. You're invited into the lift. You're invited into the lift, and the stairs are somewhere around the back and very difficult to find, and they're normally uncarpeted. Through a fire door, maybe. Through a fire door, and yeah, uh, they're just hideous. Whereas in Swedish hotels, uh, my experience is big staircase right there at the front, bang, you know, nice um, sweeping staircase which will take you up, and they wouldn't dream of having a lift at the front. So um, clearly if you're going up 15 floors, that would be a bit more challenging. But for most cases, it's three flights of stairs. And, you know, you're in a shopping mall. You've got the elevator going up. People are standing on the elevator. They're even standing on the elevator going down, which I find extraordinary. They can't even be bothered to walk down steps. And I do find that disturbing. Yeah, so there's government responsibility and local yes. responsibilities. But I guess mostly it's down to us. It, it is. But as I said, yeah, I, mean, I think you have to accept the fact that uh, we are almost programmed to be slothful and we're almost programmed if you like to seek out high fat high sugar stuff like that we like it and uh, the challenge uh, for the future is how do we overcome these almost natural tendencies if you like so what's happened is that big food has exploited our desire uh, for these fatty sugary foods and again I'm not one of those people who believe that sugar is particularly addictive I think it's a combination because I don't I'm not going to bury my face in a sugar bowl. Um, I'm not going to just spoon down uh, white sugar because it tastes absolutely vile. Uh, but I do love chocolate. It's that sort of mixture of fat and sugar and the other stuff which seems to be irresistible. And again, the food manufacturers know that, so they've created all these foods uh, which are highly palatable and which I would suggest are indeed addictive and indeed 
in the new book, I do have a sort of. I think that was. Foods, what, I think that was what got me my score on your carb test. Is yeah. Because there are a few things in there, but anybody. Yeah, every, everyone gets a, a hit from eating chocolate pretty much, don't Not they? everyone, actually. Oddly Not enough, uh, there is a thing called the Yale Food Addiction Scale. And uh, some people, my wife doesn't give it, she doesn't care about chocolate at all. Yeah. Uh, complete indifference. Uh, but um, certainly on that, this was carried out in American uh, undergraduates, so not necessarily typical, but the top three most addictive foods when they tested a bunch of students were chocolate followed by crisps followed by pepperoni pizza. And not surprisingly at the bottom were things like cauliflower and cabbage and things like that. So uh, yeah, these are sort of foods that most of us seek out. And um, in the Yale food addiction scale, it's quite interesting. It has things like, do you hide it from your partner? Do you go drive down to the petrol station? And, you know, the honest truth is, that, yeah, you know, some, sometimes I do. <laughs> I, saw, I, saw that, I saw that question on the test, do you ever yeah. hide? And I thought, and as I was hovering over it, I was thinking, the people that hide from the, from the parts, they're probably going to lie on that. No, absolutely, yeah. Uh, the good thing is you do it yourself, don't you? So you there's no point in lying in, uh, when you're assessing yourself. You might as well reveal. Yeah. You don't have to tell anybody else about it. But I do think that being aware of your own weaknesses probably helps. But again, I'm a fan, you know, if you're going to, if you're going on a diet, then just get everything out of the house because if there is junky food in the house, then I will eat it. Um, you know, despite everything I know and everything I believe, uh, I, I don't actually think uh, we lose these desires. I think we just find ways of curbing them or controlling them. And one of the best ways of controlling them is just not have them in the house. Do you find it strange sometimes to think of yourself as this big name in the diet world and then that you're still subject to the same weaknesses as everyone else? Uh, I think it's part of the human condition, isn't it? And I think what people like um, to some degree about me is that I do acknowledge my weaknesses and also the fact that um, I do wrestle with my demons and that I do all these things to myself um, so I'm hopefully authentic and uh, so also if you do see me eating chocolate you'll know why uh, I, I do think you know I'd be better off without it but um, I've yet to shake it off entirely How do you sleep now? Cause you talked about insomnia before uh, Okay, not great um, it depends <coughs> with me almost entirely on how stressed I'm feeling and I'm uh, super busy at the moment so I'm pretty stressed uh, and I know all the things I should do uh, and they are more or less effective but my sleep is not great. And the, but this, this came in later in life, this wasn't always a problem? No, I used to sleep incredibly soundly uh, and it was kind of probably early, I can't actually put a time to it, probably early 40s onwards. And so I, I don't know if I became more stressed after that or if um, something kicked in. Uh, but yeah, uh, I started, um, and my sleep is a bit better than it was. Uh, it is an area that I've made quite a lot of television on and which I'm currently avidly researching because I do think it is absolutely fascinating. And it is a core part of uh, being healthy. You know, you've got to manage say, Another of the main building blocks oh, 100%. of sleep. and if. And that's again one of the things which uh, has become in the book and the online and all that sort of stuff is unlike the fast diet, I spend a lot more time writing about exercise activity uh, and stress management and sleep and things like that than I did then because everything interacts with everything else. And it's very difficult, for example, uh, to maintain a healthy weight 
um, unless you are sleeping well because but equally it's difficult to sleep well unless you are a healthy weight because you're much more likely to snore you're going to be have sleep apnea where you wake up all the time so you've got to get everything going in the right direction and again exercise uh, you know you know it's going to improve your mood or most people it does being outside particularly go outside first thing in the morning it's going to help reset your internal clock all this stuff uh, interacts with everything else and it's how you incorporate it all in your life and that's kind of what I'm about is uh, detail it's kind of detailed advice on what to do how to do it and try stuff on yourself I'm a great believer in self-experimentation because uh, nothing is going to work for everyone and you've got to try different things and see if they work for you I guess the difficult thing with sleep is with food although we've got our weaknesses and you can decide what yeah. you do and don't eat with sleep you can't make yourself sleep no you can't but you can again change the environment in such a way that it's more likely that you will sleep and there is some decent evidence now about the impact of the foods you eat on your sleep um, so that's what I'm exploring at the moment okay so more to be learned from that okay amazing so the the if people want to find out more about the fast 800 it's the fast 800.com that's right dr. Michael Mosley thank you very much for talking to me pleasure Thank you very much to Dr. Michael Mosley. Find out more about his new diet at thefast800.com. Healthy Beast is at Healthy Beast on Instagram. Mm-hmm.